Welcome to this Ubula Audio presentation of The Whispering Box Mystery by John Blaine. Volume 4 Chapter 7 The Whispering Box Yanig. That was the name Colonel Blythe had given, the name on their identity cards. Rick asked, Sir, what is Yanig? One of the organizations, perhaps the chief one, engaged in protecting the security of the United States. I use the word security in its government sense, which means the protection of secret documents and processes. The name derives from the first letters of the full title, Joint Army-Navy Intelligence Group. Rick repeated the title aloud. It had a strange sound. He had the sudden feeling that he and Scotty had been projected into the middle of a novel, a thriller about spies. Dr. Kepner divined his thoughts. It sounds romantic, I suppose. It isn't. Not the slightest. It's mostly very dull detail work. Only in times like this, when the unexpected threatens to break down security precautions, does the entire force go into action. And I assure you that they do not fail. It was a comforting thought. Rick remembered the way Steve Ames had impressed him. Do we go to work right away? Scotty asked. Dr. Kepner consulted his watch. I think not. Suppose you report at eight in the morning. The persons you are actually to assist will be here then. Meanwhile, I have a problem I can tackle better alone. Scotty and Rick looked at each other, the same thought in their minds. Return to the hotel room for another day? Do we have to hang around the hotel? Rick queried anxiously. No, go back and check to be sure there are no further instructions for you. Then you may do as you please. However, don't be out of touch with the hotel for more than two hours at a time. Phone in. The desk clerks can be trusted. They're Steve's men. I hope we can help, Rick said doubtfully. He wasn't at all sure of himself when it came to working with strangers. He had worked with the Spindrift scientists for so long he could anticipate their requests for equipment or materials. He knew the Spindrift equipment thoroughly, but new scientists in a new lab. The doctor ushered them to the door and waved as they went down the stairs. On the sidewalk, Rick put his hat on and looked at Scotty. I'm really snowed. We've stepped into something this time, Scotty said. No wonder Dad couldn't tell us anything. Rick agreed. Scotty, do you suppose Weiss and Zircon are all right? I don't know. I wish I did. You can see why they were kidnapped, can't you? Because the other side, whoever they are, doesn't want to give the government a chance to build a counterweapon. But that can't be all of the answer. If they wanted to stop the work entirely, they'd have to get rid of all the other scientists. Scotty nodded. But by kidnapping Weiss and Zircon, they gained time. They're the two best men in the field on this kind of thing. 
Remember, your dad turned all the ultrasonic work over to Wise. They had walked slowly in the direction of the hotel as they talked. But if they're stalling for time, that must mean they're planning a really big job, and they can't afford any interference, Rick said thoughtfully. Maybe one more strike at some secret lab or something, and they'll quit. There ain't no use making guesses, Scotty said. We might as well wait until there are some answers. At the hotel, the clerk greeted them with an envelope. Rick took it, his hand suddenly unsteady. It might be more instructions. It might even be news of Weiss and Zircon. Then he saw the return address. It's from Barbie, he said. He sat down on a couch in the lobby, Scotty next to him and tore the envelope open. It was in Barbie's distinctive handwriting. She always made her letters large with flourishes, and they usually took a sheet for a half dozen sentences. Dear Rick and Scotty, by now you are enjoying the sights of the Capitol, and I wish I were with you. Have you met any congressmen yet? If you see the president, tell him to pass a law so that girls have to go with their brothers on all long trips. What I'm writing about especially is that Dismal almost caught the woodchuck. He came home and he had some fur in his mouth. I think he must have caught him just as he went into his hole, but didn't get a firm grip. When he came home, he was as proud as anything. He ate a big meal and then went right back. It was the first time he came home without being called, so I guess he thought he had done a pretty good day's work. Mr. Huggins was here yesterday, though, and he said unless we get rid of that woodchuck, there won't be enough lettuce left in the garden to garnish a salad for a church mouse, which certainly isn't much lettuce. He said he would get a gun and shoot the woodchuck, but Mother came to the rescue and said not to. It was Dismal's woodchuck, and no one was going to get it but him. Mr. Huggins shrugged and said if you want to buy lettuce and feed what we grow to a woodchuck, that's okay with him. He says he's just a farmer. I guess I don't know anything about dog psychology. Is that how you spell it? I can't find it in my dictionary. Everything else is very quiet and the island is lonesome with everyone away. I went on a picnic yesterday and got sunburned, so my nose is peeling now. Oh yeah, one more thing. The other day the phone rang and I answered. It was for Dad. He told whoever it was to hold the line and then came to the switchboard and made me go into the kitchen so I couldn't listen. I think that was mean. Anyway, right after that, Professor Gordon took your cub, Rick, and flew Dad somewhere. When he came back, Professor Gordon, I mean, he was all by himself. I don't know where Dad went. I don't think Mom does either. Anyway, we haven't heard a word from him. That was on Friday afternoon. I think it's very funny he should go off like that, but I guess it's all right. Send me some postcards, and please try to get me some good autographs. Mom sends her love, and so does your loving sister, Barbie. Rick let the letter fall to his lap and looked at Scotty, face pale. Dad has vanished, too. Take it easy, Scotty said quickly. Don't go jumping to conclusions. It must have been a legitimate phone call because Professor Gordon flew him to the mainland. He's probably working on the case somewhere else. I wish I knew that for sure, Rick said. He stared at the letter. That's Barbie for you. She puts it at the end of the letter. Well, she can't know what's going on, Scotty reminded him. To her, it's more important about Dismal and the woodchuck. It wouldn't even occur to her that your dad might be in any danger. I suppose not, Rick agreed. I hope it never does. Scotty stood up. Where do we go? Can't hang around here. We'll go crazy. How about a movie? 
Rick knew the Scotty was right, staying at the hotel with nothing to think about but the mysterious enemy who had taken Weiss and Zircon, and possibly his father, would be foolish. It would leave them in such a state of mind that they wouldn't be able to work efficiently when the time came. I suppose you want to see an oat opera, he said. Fine way to describe the sweeping panorama of a historical western motion picture, Scotty retorted. Hysterical or historical? Take your pick. Anyway, I don't care about seeing a western. A nice horror picture would suit me just fine. Entertainment to suit the mood, huh? Rick agreed. Let's hike downtown and look at the shows. Okay, better stop at the desk first. Rick nodded and walked to where the sleepy clerk was reading the sports section of the Washington Star. Anything for room 408? Drowsy eyes scanned them briefly. Not a thing. You going out? To a movie, Scotty said. Call back in a couple of hours. We will. They left the hotel and walked down G Street. Rick was turning the latest news over in his mind. Had his father's disappearance been deliberate, or had he fallen into the enemy's hands? Mr. Brandt! Rick and Scotty turned. The hotel clerk was standing on the steps waving at them. Rick's first thought was that there was some word that had come from Steve Ames. Then he saw that the clerk held a hat in his hands. His hat. The sudden excitement died. He walked back and took the hat. Thanking the clerk, he put the hat on and rejoined Scotty, and they continued on their way. Neither of them noticed the dark blue sedan parked across the street from the hotel. The sound of Rick's name, the two men in it, had showed quick interest. Now, as the boys continued toward the center of the city, the sedan pulled away from the curb, heading in the opposite direction, and started around the block. I'm plenty worried about Dad, Rick told Scotty. You know the kind of people we're working against. Anybody with brass enough to walk right into a guarded government building wouldn't have any qualms about removing people who stood in their way. Do you think I don't realize that? A few cars had been drifting past, but Rick paid no attention. As they approached the corner of 19th Street, though, a sedan drew up, an ordinary-looking model. There were two men in the front seat. Rick glanced up, not particularly curious. He noticed the man sitting beside the driver, who was past middle age and wore sunglasses. Then, unexpectedly, the driver of the car, a younger man with a flattened nose like an unsuccessful prize fighter, leaned past the older man and called, You're Mr. Brent, right? Yeah, Rick said. Steve Ames sent us to pick you up. Get in. The back door of the sedan swung open. Rick started to obey. He walked to the open door with Scotty behind him. Then he caught a movement out of the corner of his eye. To get into the back seat, he half-turned and the steps of the hotel half a block down the street came into his line of vision. He saw the clerk still on the hotel steps, saw him start toward the sedan, then abruptly change his mind and run into the hotel. Rick's mind clicked at lightning speed. The clerk was Steve's man. Dr. Kepner had said so. Then why had the clerk acted so strangely? Run, Scotty! Rick turned and sprinted. He was ten paces from the car when the thing hit. There was a high, shrill whispering, then total silence. His mind commanded his legs to continue running, but there was suddenly no feeling anywhere in his body. He fought to keep his balance, but he could no longer exercise control. He fell sideways, and as he turned in midair, he saw the driver getting out of the sedan. Rick knew when he struck the sidewalk, because rough cement was suddenly close to his eyes, but he felt nothing. He must have rolled when he hit, because blue sky, 
filtered by green leaves, was in his eyes. The thing had happened so suddenly there was no time to be afraid. He couldn't believe he was paralyzed. He tried to move and saw the sky shake and knew he was moving, but he couldn't feel his muscles respond. He tried to yell, and in his own mind he did yell, but his lips didn't move. He could hear nothing. Then the sky was blotted out as the driver leaned over him, reaching for him. They were pulling him into the car. It was like a scene in a silent movie, as though it were happening to someone else. He tried to fight, and his muscles refused to obey. He saw the car door loom up as he was propelled toward it. Then the scene gyrated. Black and Caddam Road came up with frightening speed and got blacker and blacker. And then there was nothing at all. Rick struggled up through syrupy blackness. Once he thought he heard a voice, but he couldn't be sure. He thought that he was encased in black tar, unable to move even a finger, but he couldn't be sure of that either. He heard somebody groaning and wondered if that were Scotty. What had happened to Scotty? He struggled again, trying to free himself from the dark bonds that held him fast. The groaning was louder now. It sounded like someone making a mighty effort to free himself from something. He pressed his lips tight with the effort of moving, and the groaning stopped abruptly. That startled him. The groans were his. He tried to force his eyes open, and a glimmer of light showed through. He's coming out of it. The voice was small and far away. Rick opened his eyes and stared up at a white ceiling. He tried to roll his eyes, and miracle of miracles he succeeded. Faces were bent over him, anxious and familiar. Dr. Kempner and Hartson Brandt. Rick yelled, Dad! Hartson Brandt was white, but he managed a joke. Now you know how dismal felt, son. With his father's help, Rick sat up and looked around him. He was in Dr. Kempner's lab on a leather couch, and Scotty was sitting next to him on a chair, dazed grin on his face. We've had it, Scotty said. We've really had it good. What happened? Didn't those men get us? Dad, where did you come from? How did you get here? One thing at a time, Hartson Brandt smiled. You got here with the help of the hotel clerk and Steve Ames. As for me, I got in by train half an hour ago after stopping over in New York. Scotty will have to tell you the rest of it. I don't know how you felt, Scotty said, but I don't feel anything. I just heard a whispering noise, and then I turned into a statue and fell flat on my back and laid there. The men got out of the car, and the driver went for you, and the other one started for me. The driver put you on your feet like a length of cordwood and started to shove you into the car head first. I remember that, Rick said. He was slowly realizing that he hurt all over, and that his head throbbed like an ulcerated tooth. That was when the hotel clerk and two others came steaming down the street. Or that's what I was told later by the clerk. My range of vision didn't extend that far. I only know if the driver dropped you. You landed face first on the road. Isn't your nose sore? Rick reached up his hand and felt gingerly. Then he let out a yelp of anguish. I thought it was, Scotty said. I guess the driver must have left the whispering box in the car. Otherwise, he would have used it on the clerk. As it was, he didn't dare take time to get it, I guess because the clerk was waving a pistol. So the two guys hopped in the car and roared off. This is hearsay, remember? I was lying there, stiff as a hunk of hickory. Anyway, the clerk and his two helpers picked us up and carried us to the hotel. Quite a crowd was gathering round. While we were in the hotel, I snapped out of it. I didn't lose consciousness, but you must have been knocked silly when you hit that road. 
When I could walk, we carried you out the back way and loaded you into a car. Steve Ames had arrived by that time. The effects of the box had worn off all right because you were limp. That was about five minutes ago, Dr. Kepner said. Steve has gone to try to get a line on that car. But how do those men know us? Rick asked. How do they know we'd be there for them to get? They evidently know a lot more than we give them credit for, Kepner said grimly. As for the rest, they obviously have the hotel under observation. Perhaps a traitor on the staff tipped them off. We'll find out sooner or later. They merely waited until you left, then swung around the block to meet you. Scotty rubbed his head. But why'd they want us? For information, possibly, Dr. Kempner said. And another possibility is they wanted you as hostages. Rick got to his feet, a little unsteady, until Hartson Brandt slipped an arm around his shoulder. There was a mirror on the other side of the small room. Rick stared and he couldn't believe it. There was a large purple bruise on his forehead, and his nose was a swollen red blot that spread across the middle of his face. No wonder he felt as though he had come off second best in a war with an armored truck. The nose isn't broken, Dr. Kepner said, and only feels broken, Rick. It's fortunate that you have a good thick skull. Otherwise, we'd still be working over you. Scotty laughed. A good thick skull. That disposes of Brother Brant. Wait until I tell Barbie what the doctor said. If you do, Rick warned, it won't be whispers that you'll hear. It'll be birdies. Hartson Brandt and Dr. Kepner chuckled. Unfortunate choice of words for a very fortunate boy, Kepner said. The clerk, who was very alert in spite of his apparent sleepiness, had been keeping an eye on that sedan, which had been parked across the street. That's why he happened to be out there at the crucial moment. He was looking to see where it had gone. We're a lucky family, Hartson Brandt said. I'll say, Rick looked at his father. We got a letter from Barbie. She said you'd vanished. We were worried sick. Honest, Dad, it was worth getting knocked out just to wake up and find that those men didn't have you. Thanks, son, Hartson Brandt said seriously. But we mustn't lose sight of another important fact. Those men do have Weiss and Zircon. If they're still alive, Kepner added grimly. Chapter 8. Needed. A Counterweapon On the day following the first appearance of the Whispering Box, Rick, Scotty, Hartson Brandt, and Dr. Kepner were seated in Kepner's office. Rick's nose and forehead were still very tender, but the swelling had subsided and he looked almost normal. Aside from the wounds caused by the sudden contact with the Macadam Road, he had not suffered from the Whispering Weapon. The effects are easy to analyze. Dr. Kempner said. The first impact on the sound waves causes a paralysis of the inner ear, which is the seat of balance. The person attacked loses entire control over his balance. That's the reason for the complete lack of bodily coordination. What was the term you used, Scotty? Scotty grinned. Just flapping around like a hooked trout. A good simile. The first effect is immediately followed by a more complete paralysis of the nervous system, which I think is caused by the sheer volume of sound. It seems funny to talk about sound when you couldn't even hear it, Rick said. What do you think caused the whispering? Leakage, Hartson Brandt explained. I'm sure some of the compressed air leaked out, possibly through a valve or a trigger that operates the weapon. Such a leak would cause a whispering or hissing sound. 
That reminds me, Rick said. Maybe the reason those men didn't use the box and the hotel clerk was because there was no time to recharge it. Wouldn't they have to build up air pressure again? Dr. Kempner shook his head. The first time they used the box at the hospital lab, they used it twice in succession. I'm sure it needs recharging frequently, but they are probably able to build up enough pressure to last for two or three separate shots. They may even have two or three separate pressure tags built into the box. Rick had tried to think of some way that a counterweapon might be created, but with no success. How could they combat a sound wave? In order to understand what we're trying to do, Hartson Brandt said, you boys have to have a clear idea of the forces we're working with. You've seen one effect of ultrasonic sound. There are many others that have been observed in experiments. There is a definite effect on the nervous system of humans when certain frequencies are used. People become irritable and nervous without even knowing why. Then there are certain mechanical effects. Ultrasonic sounds have been used to set paper afire. In England, experiments have been conducted in washing clothes ultrasonically. The waves actually vibrate dirt right out of the things. Dr. Kempner added, The field has been badly neglected. Only now are we realizing the potential of silent sound. We may be using it to kill bacteria or using it in industry to shake tiny particles around so that more uniform compounds may be formed. There are unlimited possibilities. For the present, however, we must create an ultrasonic defense. Until we do, we're vulnerable to such attacks as you have experienced. But how do you defend against sound? Rick demanded. We can't soundproof buildings. We can't get people to wear earmuffs. Hartson Brandt and Dr. Kepner chuckled. We won't go about it in quite that way, Mr. Brandt said. We have learned that the whispering box operates at a very high frequency. We think the wavelength of that sound may be high enough so that we could use what in radio is sometimes termed a heterodyne. In other words, we can create a beat frequency. Uh, that's nice, Scotty remarked blankly. Rick had a glimmer of understanding, though. Sometimes when two radio waves were used close together in frequency, they produced a squeal. That happened often with old-fashioned radios. Hartson Brandt was watching his son's face. Rick felt his father's glance and smiled. I'm working on it, Dad. Take your time, Rick. You can figure it out. I'm not so sure, but I think I know what you mean. Suppose the whispering box operates at a frequency of 50,000 cycles per second, which is just another way of saying 50,000 vibrations a second. You create a sound of 49,500 cycles a second, and they beat against each other. The result, which would be the difference between the two frequencies, would be a tone we could hear. It would be a 500-cycle note, which is just above a middle A on the piano. Very well put, Kepner said. Scotty had an objection. Well, suppose they change frequencies on you. Your counterweapon would be useless until you analyze the new wavelength. Very true, and that's what makes the creation of our own defense such a problem. Kepner rose and paced the room. We must make our counterweapon flexible and automatic. It must analyze the frequency of the whispering box, adjust its own mechanism to emit a counterfrequency, and do it so rapidly that people nearby will not be affected by the attacker's weapon. There is only one means of getting such speed, Hartson Brandt added. Exactly. That means is electronics. Only electrons move rapidly enough. That's why we had a call on Spindrift Island. 
We were depending on Weiss and Zircon to work with us here while you, Hartson, and John Gorton continued research at home. Now, with Weiss and Zircon missing, we have had to call you down here to join us. What about Professor Gordon? Scotty asked. We asked him to stay at Spindrift to continue his work on the long-range aspects. He's engaged in making artificial crystals. You know, of course, that most frequencies in electronics are crystal-controlled. Rick said, That's what he's doing with the annealing furnace. Correct, Rick. Hartzenbrand smiled. But, Kempner, surely you and I can't do this job alone. Think of the scope of the task. We need more help. Help is on the way. Dr. Kempner assured him. Have you heard of Dr. Ralph Bertona? Of Case Western University? I certainly have. I've never had the pleasure of meeting him, but I know his work very well. He's a man I'd like to have on my staff. Which is certainly the highest compliment you could pay. Dr. Kempner chuckled. Well, Bertona is flying in here from Cleveland. He should be here late tonight. He stood up. Suppose we get to work. We have the broad outline of what we need. I'm sure we can produce. He took them into the laboratory where two men were already at work. One, an older man who looked like the traditional figure of a nearsighted bookkeeper, was bent over a drawing board. This is Mr. Terhoon, Kepner said. A wonderful craftsman with a drawing pen. He'll draft the blueprints from which we will work. He indicated the other man who was busy with a broom. Mr. Fanning is my assistant. If you need any equipment, he will supply it. Fanning, a younger man with rimless glasses and a luxuriant brown mustache, looked up from his floor sweeping and nodded. Glad to know you. Are any of you experts with a broom? We don't employ a janitor for security reasons, Kepner explained, smiling. Fanning makes an excellent assistant, but a poor sweeper. Rick and Scotty were assigned to a workbench, equipped for shaping and drilling metal. Dr. Kempner put them to work on the blueprint of the chassis, or aluminum base, on which a part of the electronic circuit would be mounted. Where does the compressed air tank go? Scotty asked, looking at the design. There won't be one. Kempner indicated a cone-shaped device. This is a little development of my own. It's what might be called an ultrasonic loudspeaker, a speaker that is capable of reproducing ultrasonic sounds. The sounds themselves will be created electronically. How can you make sounds with electronics? Scotty objected. Rick knew the answer to that one. Ever hear of a Hammond electronic organ or a Nova chord? They play music created by electronic tubes. Quite right, Dr. Kepner agreed. The boys found sheet aluminum and went to work as Dr. Kepner and Hartson Brandt joined the draftsman and began a long discussion over the drawing board. It was an easy job. Rick's hands worked mechanically while his thoughts were busy on other things. None of them had talked much about Weiss and Zircon, but the mystery of their disappearance was on every mind. The thought that they might have been harmed made the job of tracking down the enemy and creating a counterweapon a personal thing. If anything happened to the scientists, the other spin drifters would see that they were amply revenged. But revenge was useless, Rick thought. What he wanted was to see Weiss and Zircon alive and well. I wonder if Steve Ames is making any progress, he inquired aloud. Scotty shrugged. Probably not much. He'll have to have a whole lot of luck. When people just vanish like that, it ain't easy to find them again. I wish we could do something, Rick said grimly. So do I. Scotty was bending a strip of aluminum into shape. He gave it a vicious twist. 
But if Steve Ames and all of Yanni can't find them, what could we do? Nothing, Rick answered morosely. He concentrated on the work before him. When Hartson Brandt came to the bench, Rick and Scotty had completed the chassis, except for the drilling of the tube socket holes, and that couldn't be done until the circuit wiring diagrams were completed. Good work, Hartson Brandt said. Well, the afternoon is over so far as you two are concerned. Rick glanced at his wristwatch. It was only half past four. Isn't there anything else we could do? Not until tomorrow. Kempner and I are working on the circuits, but there is still a great deal of calculating to do. We'll keep on this evening. Besides, Dr. Bertono may arrive, and we'll have to brief him on the problem. Can you two amuse yourselves? I guess so. Rick tidied up the bench with Scotty's aid and saw that all the tools were put away. Fanning, the helper, came over to give them a hand. He examined the chassis they had been working on. Nate job, he complimented them. Rick and Scotty thanked Fanning and then walked with him to the front of the lab where Dr. Kempner, Hartson Brandt, and Terhune were bent over the drawing board. Fanning looked at the intricate lines on the board. Looks like the wiring diagram for a Christmas tree. Does it make any sense? We hope it makes some kind of sense, Hartson Brandt smiled. He addressed Rick and Scotty. I'll get a bite to eat at the drugstore next door. Don't plan on my coming home early. We may be here until late. We'll get some exercise, Scotty said. We need it. Good idea, Dr. Kepner approved. Why not walk around and see the sights? If you haven't seen the Lincoln Memorial, I'd recommend that. To my mind, it's the most impressive thing in all of Washington. I'd like to see that, Rick said. I've seen it before, but so long ago I can't remember. It's one thing people don't get tired of looking at, Scotty agreed. We'll get something to eat and then hike down that way. So long, everybody. He and Rick went down the stairs and out into the afternoon sun. Rick clapped a hand to his head. I forgot my hat again, Scotty grinned. Never mind. I can't get used to seeing you with that on anyway. I keep thinking I'm with a stranger. Speaking of strangers, Rick pointed across the street. The second stranger, the one who had been at Spindrift with Steve Ames, was smiling at them from a doorway. I wondered when he'd show up, Scotty remarked. The stranger came across the street and shook hands, smiling. Pete Davis is my name. Don't tell me yours. I know all about you. What are you doing here, Rick asked, before he remembered that he wasn't supposed to ask questions. Davis had no hesitation about answering. I'm the head of the guard detail. Scotty looked around. What guard detail? Can't see the boys, but they're around. One is on the roof of the building opposite. Nah, don't look up. If anyone's watching, we don't want them tipped off. Another is on the third floor of this building. Both of them have rifles. We have a couple of carloads of men spotted around. I don't know what good guards will do if the whispering box is turned on. Plenty, Davis assured him. As far as we can figure, the box is pretty directional. Won't work at any great distance. That's what Dr. Kepner told us. So I spotted my men in all directions. If the gang shows up with a box, they may get a couple of my boys, but while they're doing it, one of the sharpshooters will pick them off like ducks from another direction. No matter which way they turn, they're going to be covered. If it's so easy as that, why not just post guards at all the government buildings? Rick asked. Well, we do have extra men on, but it's not the answer. To do it properly, you need men at every point of the compass. That takes more guards than the government has. What's more, it's human nature to get careless. 
My own men won't, but regular guards are apt to. And with this box gadget, one second of looking in the wrong direction at the wrong time is plenty. I'll see what you mean, Scotty agreed. Have you heard anything from Steve? He tracked the car that got you kids. It's at headquarters now, being checked over. They won't tell us anything, though. Stolen, naturally. They wouldn't use one of their own. No sign of Weiser Zircon, Rick asked. David shook his head. Sorry. I didn't really hope for any news, Rick said. We'll be going. See you later, Mr. Davis. Right. And don't worry about Mr. Brandt. We're keeping him so well covered that a mosquito couldn't get to him without our knowledge. Well, that's a relief. How about us? Scotty asked. You're on your own. We're not worried about you. The gang isn't interested in anybody but the scientists. Rick rubbed his sore nose ruefully. Wish you'd tell the guy with the whispering box that. Davis chuckled. Doesn't make any sense. I'm surprised at you. I thought for sure you'd figured out why they went after you yesterday. They wanted us for souvenirs, Scotty said. Don't flatter yourself, Sarge, Davis said, grinning. They were after Hearts and Brandt. It just happened they didn't know his son was a ringer for him. Rick's jaw dropped. So that was it. Sure. Scotty, remember how you said I looked like Dad with that hat on? That's right, Scotty agreed. But why were they waiting at our hotel? Mr. Brandt's hotel, too, Davis reminded them. They must have thought he'd check in before going to the lab. He crossed them up by coming directly to Dr. Kepner. Meanwhile, you two came out of the hotel and walked right into their arms. Did they know about the hotel? Rick said soberly. And the lab? Oh, they know plenty. Davis sounded grim. I'd like to know their source of information. We're keeping an eye on every man connected with this job. I'm getting so I don't even trust myself. Suddenly, he smiled again. But that's not your worry. Go along. Have a good time. There's plenty to see in Washington. The boys said goodbye and walked down the street toward Lafayette Square. So, they thought they were getting Dad, Rick said. I couldn't figure out what they wanted with us. Makes sense. Anyway, I'm glad the hotel clerk was on the ball. Otherwise, we'd be with Weiss and Zircon, wherever they are. Wish I knew where that was. So do I, Scotty said gruffly. But wishing isn't going to help. We can't do anything except hope.